Uh, good morning, family. Thank you so much for coming to our workshop on uh, how to grow your church. We're discussing the motion of the movement. We are not just a church, but we're also a movement. Or I should say we're more than a church, we're a movement. And uh, we're going to uh, look at the intricacies of what that means from the Bible and Spirit of Prophecy. And uh, by God's grace, share some practical things that you can do in your church and the, and the roles that you can play in your church to bring some dynamic, sustainable growth. Uh, not just growing the church, but growing the kingdom of God. And so I want to thank you for being here. My name is Taj. Uh, my wife, Wati, is also with me as well. And uh, we're originally from the beautiful islands of Hawaii, but now we live in a different type of paradise. It's called Fresno, California. A little bit different than Hawaii, but we really enjoy the work that we do uh, in doing public evangelism. Our ministry is called Revelation of Hope Ministries, and uh, we'll mention a little bit more about that later. But uh, we have lots of wonderful information to share and to cover, and so we're going to pray and get into that. Um, I did have handouts that I sent beforehand to get printed, but um, I guess whoever was in charge of that was not able to fulfill that. If you could check that, that would be a blessing, and uh, hopefully we'll get that, but uh, it's more for your information. For later on, it's about a 14-page handout on the science of spirit-filled evangelism, which is actually where Today's presentation is extracted from a, a larger series that we do whenever we are preparing for evangelism in the local church. It's entitled, as I mentioned, The Science of Spirit-Filled Evangelism, and we'll be extracting uh, some of the uh, principles from that larger series. Any further, let us pray and ask the Spirit that He would guide us and bless us in our study this morning. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you so much for your goodness and your grace we thank you for the privilege of being here at ASI to learn more about you and your work, but also your will for our lives in the role that you would have us to play in the finishing of this work. And Lord, we pray that your Holy Spirit would just fill this room, fill our hearts, that you would not only instruct us, but that you would inspire us to realize that you want to use us in a, in a powerful way to change the population of heaven for eternity. And now, Lord, I pray that you'd help each one of us to catch that vision. As we go through these principles in this workshop, we pray that you'd make our minds like a sponge, that we might soak up every blessing you have in store for us, and that, uh, that our lives, that we would be more effective and efficient laborers for you. And thank you so much for this opportunity. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Once again, our workshop entitled, How to Grow Your Church, The Motion of of the movement. And to begin with, I'd just like to share with us uh, very broadly the definition of what exactly is evangelism. You see, most people in the world and in our church today have a very shallow and unbiblical view as to what evangelism really is. Most view evangelism as an annual event that a church has that takes place over the period of three to four weeks, that happens once a year. Or they view evangelism as the job of the paid professional. But the biblical definition of evangelism is that it's neither an event nor is it a job. But rather, there are two definitions I'd like to give you, and I'll share them, uh, back them up uh, biblically in a moment. But number one, it is the lifestyle of the spirit-filled Christian. It is the what, everyone? It's not the job of the paid professional. And it's not the annual event of a church. It is basically the lifestyle of one that truly has the Spirit of God. The Spirit-filled Christian 
their whole life is that of evangelism. And the second definition of evangelism, because the church is made up of individual Christians, therefore evangelism by extension would be the life cycle of the Spirit-filled church. The life cycle of the Spirit-filled church. Now we will uh, expound on this more in detail, but what exactly is the church? The church, friends, is, is, is many things, but at least these two things. It's an organization. And what is the chief characteristic of an organization? The chief characteristic, just think of the word organization. It's organized, isn't that right? An organization is not an organization if it's unorganized. So one of the chief characteristics of an organization is that it's organized, and then the church is also a movement. And what is the chief characteristic of a movement? It's on the move. And so this is what God desires his church to be. It's not just a gathering of individuals who've been caught out of darkness, but it's a gathering of individuals who have been organized to move. Now, you can't have movement without organization. Organization is essential in order for there to be movement. And that's what we are as a church. We're going to, we're an organization and we're also a movement heading to a specific destination, heading to eternity, basically. And by the way, wherever there is movement, there is always friction. And perhaps if you've been on the move for the Lord Jesus, you realize that uh, being busy for the Lord and doing things that are important to him causes friction in your life. It excites the wrath of the dragon. He seeks to attack and distract in many different ways. And by the way, if, if there is no friction, perhaps there, that we're not really moving because movement always, bring, always brings friction. You see, Satan is only threatened by, uh, by those who are, would damage his kingdom. Satan is not angry at every church. The Bible makes it clear in the book of Revelation chapter 12 that he is angry with the woman who keeps the commandments of God and has the testimony of Jesus. Satan is not angry at every church, only with those who, that his kingdom is threatened by. And a church that is organized and is moving is a church that he is angry at because it's a church that would be a damage to his kingdom of darkness. Now, as we look up this word evangelist, in the original Greek, it's the word euangelistes. It's a noun, euangelistes. Now, that word euangelistes is rooted in another word, euangelizo, which is a verb, and that's where we get the word evangelism. So you have on the top there, evangelist, euangelistes, a noun, and then it comes from a word euangelizo, evangelism, which is a verb, it's an action. Now, both of these two words are rooted in the exact same word, the word Euangelion. And that word euangelion is the word gospel. It literally means the good news. And the reason why I want to bring out these Greek definitions of this word that is used over and over again in the, in the New Testament is so that we can see that evangelism is not just a verb or something that we do, but it's also a noun. It's something that we are. We are human beings, not human doings. And so what we do must come from the, from the depths of who we are. And both of these two, two definitions, uh, the verb and the noun, the action and the experience, is rooted in the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. 
And the very nature of news is that it ought to be communicated with others. Isn't that right? That's what news is, the very nature of it. It's to be shared. It's to be communicated. But in order for the good news to really be good, it must first make an impact in our own lives. It must be shared from the depths of our experience because we're not just human doings, we're human beings. Most people view evangelism as something that we do. The annual event of a church or the job of the paid professional. But it's not so much something we do, it's something that we are. In other words, here's the point. The, the audible proclamation of our lips must first be seen in the vis visible demonstration of our lives. When evangelism comes from the very depths of who we are, our identity in Christ, and our identity, our prophetic identity in the Word, it's then that there is power in the proclamation. And Paul made this principle very clear when he said these words in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 10 and 11. I encourage you to write down these scriptures and these references. But Paul said this, but by the grace of God, what? I am that I am. He didn't say, by the grace of God, I do what I do, but I am that I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain, but I did what? He labored more abundantly. But where did his labor come from? From an understanding of who he was, his identity. And therefore, I labored, labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. Verse 11, therefore, whether it was I or they... So we did what? Preach and so you what? What's the response? They believed. You see, when Paul preached, the people believed what he said was true. And the reason why they believe is because what he said came from the depths of who he was. In other words, for Paul, evangelism wasn't something simply that he was doing. It was, it was, it was a part of his very existence. His life uh, was, was, was consumed by the good news of Jesus Christ. And as a result of the visible demonstration of his life, the proclamation of his lips had Holy Spirit power, and as a result, people believe. And I want to submit to us that perhaps many people do not believe our proclamation is because we're speaking something that we have not yet experienced in our own lives. And so our words are void of Holy Spirit power. Paul's work came from an understanding of who he was by God's grace. As a result, when he preached, people believed because what he proclaimed with his lips was demonstrated with his life. I love what it says in the book, Christ Object Lessons, page 383. Please write it down. Divine truth exerts, how much influence? Little influence. Why is that upon the world? When it should exert, exert much influence through our practice, the mere profession of religion abounds, but it has little weight. We may claim to be followers of Christ. We may claim to believe every truth in the word of God, but this will do our neighbor how much good? No good unless our belief is carried into our daily life. Our profession may be as high as heaven, but it will save neither ourselves nor our fellow men unless we are Christians. A right example will do more to benefit the world than all our profession. This is a very simple, fundamental principle. We can't give that which we do not have ourselves. God calls us to be the salt of the earth. And if we're salt, people around us should be getting thirsty, as one other preacher said. And so what we are as Christians in Christ, as we've experienced the power of the gospel, 
will result in power in our proclamation to the world. And so, I love what it says, Christ Object Lessons, page 69. It is the privilege of every Christian not only to look for, but to do what? Hasten the coming of our Lord Jesus. You see, we're called Adventists. And that word Adventist simply means one who is waiting and looking for the second Advent of Christ. And God has called us to wait and watch for his return, but more than that, he's called us to work for the hastening of his return. And so in Desire of Ages, page 822, it says, it is a, what kind of mistake? What is another word for fatal? Deadly. So this is a life and death issue. That's how serious it is. It is a fatal mistake to suppose that the work of saving souls depends alone on the who? On the ordained minister. All to whom heavenly inspiration has come are put in trust with the gospel. All who receive the life of Christ are, what is that next word? Ordained to work for the salvation of their fellow men. Whatever one's calling in life, whether you're a doctor, a lawyer, a janitor, a businessman, a laboring man, whatever you're calling in life, his first interest should be to win souls for Christ. And so this is not the job of the paid professional, nor is it the annual event of a church. It is the calling, it is the lifestyle of the spirit-filled Christian. It's not so much something we do, but it's something we are because we're human beings, not human doings. So our doing must come from our being in Christ. God has called each of his followers not to be passive spectators, but rather active participants in sharing the gospel both visibly and audibly to others. It is both our responsibility, but also our high and holy privilege. And if we're filled with the Spirit, this work will flow naturally from our hearts. Amen? This is uh, something that is important for us to understand. We need to uh, have the Holy Spirit remove that faulty definition of evangelism that is lingering in so many people's minds and have a biblical understanding. And uh, that's what it is. And so it's our privilege to hasten the coming of Christ. How do we do that? By sharing the gospel. In Matthew chapter 24, verse 14, very familiar scripture, you know it. Please jot it down. Jesus said this, before the end comes, something must happen. What must happen? And this, let's read this together, shall we? And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations, and then shall the end come. So the gospel needs to be preached in all the world, but how is it to be preached? It says, as a witness. Now, friends, I want you to notice that, that preaching is an audible proclamation. But a witness is something more than something that is heard. You see, a testimony is something that you hear, but a witness is something that you see visibly with your eyes. And so the gospel, in order for, for the work to be finished, it must be preached audibly, but it also must be demonstrated visibly in all the world in order for the end to come. And so once again, emphasizing the same point, the euangelion, the good news, must be preached as a witness. It's a verb, but it's also a noun. It's an action, but it's also an experience. It's more than just something we do, but it's something that we are. And what exactly, what specific gospel must go to the ends of the earth before the end will come? Revelation 14, 6. Notice it brings out the same principle. John said, and I, what? 
saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach. So as John is looking upon this angel, he sees the angel, and then he hears him next. He saw the angel, then he heard the angel preach. In other words, demonstration must come before proclamation. And when it happens in that order, the proclamation will have power to go to every nation, kindred, and tongue, and people. If you look, up, uh, if you look here in Revelation 14, we find that our prophetic identity and mission are fused together. The angel, angelos, which simply means messenger, is both seen and heard. There's proclamation and demonstration in the message. God is calling us not only to give the three angels messages, but he's actually calling us to be those angels. Now, all of us are angels. We're all messengers. Question is, which type of angel are you? Because I know that there are at least two different types of angels, right? There are heavenly angels and there are demonic earthly angels. And uh, I pray that we can all be those three angels. Now, if our understanding of evangelism falls short of this biblical definition, then we're not going to take ownership of that which already belongs to each one of us as Christians. Now, we may still do the work of evangelism, but our work will spring from our own limited, weak, and finite human effort and resources. This is what we call event-oriented evangelism. We think about it as just an event that happens over a period of a few weeks. But this type of evangelism, event-oriented evangelism, will inevitably lead to stress, burnout, and fugal results. Unfortunately, this is how most of our churches, most people either view or do evangelism. And those holding this definition, this view of evangelism, are misinformed at best, deceived at worst. Therefore, it's no surprise why the lifestyle of spirit-filled evangelism is lacking in many of our churches today. But as I mentioned, when evangelism comes and is done from who we are, it leads to revival and restoration and a reaping and enlargement for the kingdom of God. It's then that growth takes place in the local church. In the book Desire of Ages, page 825, what we're doing right now is just getting the broad uh, foundational understanding. Then we'll look at more of the specifics and the details. But evangelism, page 825, says that the very life of the church depends upon her faithfulness in fulfilling the Lord's commission. To neglect this work is surely to invite spiritual feebleness and decay. Where there is no what kind of labor? Active labor for others. What happens? Love wanes and faith grows dim. And this is the sad reality of the condition of many churches. Faith is dim. The light is not shining that brightly in the community. And love has grown cold in many churches. Why? Because we are not actively involved in evangelism. If we're not reaching out, we're just focusing on our own problems. We're, 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 we're focusing on self. But when we take our eyes off of self and put it on, on the needs of others, the community, when we reach out, God reaches in and stirs within us a revival experience in our own lives. And so where there's no active labor, love wanes and faith grows dim. The opposite is true. Where there is active labor for others, then love will grow hot and faith will grow bright. And I know that that's something that we all want to experience in our churches. I love this quotation from Testimonies to the Church, Volume 4, page 319. It says, the minister should not do all the work himself, 
but he should unite with him those who have taken hold of the truth. He will thus teach others to do, to, excuse me, to work after he shall leave. A working church will ever be a what? The title of our seminar that they, that they gave to, uh, for me to share, How to Grow Your Church. Very simple. A working church will ever be a growing church. And then I like this next sentence. They will ever find a stimulus and a tonic. It sounds like they're getting high. <laughs> but it's a spiritual high, amen? A stimulus and a tonic in trying to help others. And in doing it, they will be strengthened and encouraged. And so uh, one of the antidotes for weakness and discouragement is to get out and, and, and make yourself available to be used by the Lord. God's ability is our availability. We may not have the skills and the resources or the, or the talents and the gifts, but friends, God is not dependent on those things. He's only dependent upon our willingness to be used by him. I mean, think about it. If God can use a donkey and a whale and a rooster, how much more can he use us if we're willing? Amen? And so the, one of the chief benefactors of outreach is our own experience. We will be strengthened. We will be encouraged. And that's why God calls us. I mean, think about it. Why in the world would God choose us, frail, faulty, sinful humanity, to give such a high, elevated, and exalted message to the world? Why would he use us when the angels could do a lot better job? Why would, in the world would he call us to witness when God can do it better himself? Well, it's not just for those who we're talking to, but it's for us. It's the way that God is seeking to save us. And the Bible tells us in Isaiah 43, verse 10, You are my witnesses, says the Lord, my servant whom I have chosen. But why does God call us to be a witness? What is the chief reason that he gives in this passage? That who? you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me there was no God formed, nor shall there be after me. You see, God says, you are my witnesses, and the reason he gives is not so that they may know and believe me, but rather so that you will know and believe me. God wants us to be his witness because this is the way that we uh, become acquainted with Christ. It's how we enter into the sufferings and the, and the burdens that, that Jesus experienced. It's for our own sake. And so whenever I do evangelistic seminars at a church, I, I show up and I give the, uh, this orientation to the church. And I tell the church, I'm going to be here during the meetings every single night that we have a meeting. I'm going to be here. Not because I've been invited to preach. I'm going to be there for that reason as well. But the primary reason why I'm going to show up is because I believe that God wants to do something in my life. There are areas of growth that he wants me to experience. There are ways in which he wants to build my character. And so I'm going to show up because I know that there's a blessing in store for me in this place. And, and I encourage the church to come for that exact same reason. We're not just doing it for the community. We're really, we're, we're doing it for ourselves as well. It's more blessed to give than to receive. So as we give, God gives us more of himself. I love the promise in Proverbs eleven twenty five. 25, he that waters shall be watered also himself. Have you ever gone through dry experiences in your Christianity? Your walk with God, you feel like you're in the dry desert. It's tough, it's difficult. The Bible says that when we share the water of life, God waters us in the process. And so uh, very, we started very broad. Uh, the evangelistic 
movement that will carry the church forward into eternity is when we realize that it's not the annual event of a church, nor is it the job for simply the paid professionals, but it is twofold. Number one, what is the definition of evangelism? It is the, help me, I'm, test, I'm giving you a quiz, the lifestyle of the spirit-filled Christian, and because the church is made up of Christians, by extension, the second definition of evangelism is that it's the life cycle of the spirit-filled church. The lifestyle of the Christian, the life cycle of the church. And that's what brings movement, motion to the movement, momentum and motion to the movement, the organization. It will carry our church forward into eternity. Satan is afraid of that type of impact. What type of impact will God's remnant church make in these last days? But now let's turn to the words of Jesus. In John 14, 12, Jesus said to the early apostolic church, he said, most assuredly I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. And what kind of works? Greater works than these he will do because I go to my father. So that's a, that's a very potent promise. Jesus said, the same works I've done, you're going to do. But then you're going to take it to the next. It says, greater works will he do. Why? Because I go to my father. Now, in what way will the church the church's works be greater. Not in, it's not going to be greater in, in, in quality, but rather in quantity. Because you see, Jesus' ministry on earth was limited to a, a very relatively small area there in Judea, in Jerusalem. But the work that Christ is going to do through his church is going to make worldwide impact. And so, the work is going to be greater, not in quality, but rather in quantity. Not in importance, but rather in its impact to the world. And so, according to the passage we just read, what enables the church to make that worldwide impact? Jesus gave the reason. He said, greater works than these shall he do, because I go to my Father. And so, what does that have to do with empowering the church to impact the world greater than, than he did uh, in as far as its quantity is concerned. It's because when he went to the Father, what did he send? He sent the Holy Spirit. In John 16, 7, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is expedient for you that I go away, for if I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. And so that which enables us as God's people, God's church, to make that impact, the worldwide impact, is we must be filled with that Holy Spirit. This is, as I mentioned, what I call the science of Spirit-filled evangelism. Now, this promise, I depart, but I'll send the Spirit, this promise was fulfilled just before the day of Pentecost, when the disciples were filled with the Holy Spirit. And uh, this principle is very important for our, our workshop this morning in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus said to the disciples and to his people, you shall receive what? That word power in the original Greek, it's, it's the word dynamite, dunamis, which is where we get the English word dynamite. You shall receive power. After that, the Holy Ghost has come upon you. Power for what? And ye shall be witnesses unto me, both now notice the geographical locations, Jerusalem, 
and then in all Judea, in Samaria, and to the uttermost part of the earth. So a worldwide impact will take place. The Holy Spirit would empower his church to do the duty that lied nearest, to go to Jerusalem first. And then when they were faithful in that geographical location, then they extended to Judea, then Samaria, then they would take it to the far corners of the earth, to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. And when, those, when that early church got together in the upper room, they put aside their pride and their selfishness. They made things right with one another and right between them and heaven. They humbled themselves and they prayed, they sought God's face, they turned from their wicked ways, and God heard from heaven. The Spirit was poured out, and as a result, the whole world, Bible tells us, was turned upside down by this early church. Their, lim their resources, as far as earthly resources, were very limited, but the resources of heaven were at their disposal, and God used them in a powerful way to make that impact. And so what we see happening with the early church is but a glimpse of what God wants to do with the remnant church of Bible prophecy. Because we've been told that the Pentecostal outpouring back then was just a glimpse of the final Pentecostal outpouring of the last days. And it's our decision if we want to be a part of it or not. I want to be a part of it. How about you? Well, I want to see this happen. Mercy drops round us are falling. But we need to be pleading for the showers of God's blessing. Now, just to back up a little bit, this verse that we just read in Acts 1.8, has a, is a verse that has really um, has shaped my own evangelistic ministry. Uh, some of you heard my testimony before, but I was never brought up uh, in the church. Uh, growing up, my parents never went to church. They were separated most of my life. Um, and because they didn't know Jesus, they couldn't give me what they didn't have. And so I grew up in a godless household. We never went to church. Growing up, I was totally ignorant of spiritual things didn't know God or the Word of God or what God was. And as a result of not having a strong spiritual foundation in high school, I got into a lot of trouble. And this was me. I'm going to show you a picture of what I used to look like. This was me just about 16 years ago. I was a young 16-year-old druggie getting high every single day. If you look into those eyes, no life in those eyes. I was a slave to my own addictions. But in that lost condition... Uh, someone came and knocked on my door, and they put an invitation to my, in my hand to a Bible prophecy seminar. And let me share with you, friends, that that invitation to that seminar was like an invitation to heaven. We have to understand that when we give people literature, that for many of them, it's an invitation to eternity. It's like we're opening the doors for, in, in, in Christ's stead to heaven for them. Because when I received that invitation, I went to those meetings. And I went, many times my mind clouded on drugs. But the word of God was able to penetrate my clouded mind, pierce my heart and heart. As Jesus was lifted up in the context of the prophetic word. To make a long story short, I just haven't been the same since. At the end of those meetings, I was baptized. And my life was changed. God set me free from a life of drugs, took it away, gave me the victory, gave me a peace and a, a, a calm assurance that I never experienced before. 
And it was through those meetings that I actually not only found God, but I found God's calling for my life. Because I remember sitting in those meetings, hearing the word of God in, the, in this evangelistic meeting. And it was like God was saying to me, Taj, one day you're going to stand where that man is standing. One day you're going to be doing what he's doing. Now, I was a 16-year-old druggie with no direction in life. And never in my wildest imaginations would I could, could fathom being an evangelist. But God called, and by God's grace, he gave me the ability to respond. And that's what we've been doing for the last eight, nine years of our lives. Amen? That's what God has done in my life. But immediately, when, when I first was converted, I started getting involved in ministry. 16 years old, I was baptized. 16 years old, I gave my first sermon, and that's a picture of one of the first sermons I gave back then. And uh, God was teaching me that I needed to do the duty that lied nearest. Now, I was sl I, I, I'm still a shy person, slow of speech, burnt up a lot of brain cells, socially awkward. I, I grew up almost, almost my whole life as the only child, therefore I didn't really have that much social skills. And so I was the least likely candidate to preach and to do the work of an evangelist. But God grew me and gave me opportunities. My pastor let me preach one Sabbath morning. Amazing. Gave me that opportunity. I was stumbling over my words. I wasn't making best sense. In Hawaii, you know, we speak a different language. It's called simplified English. And so my vocabulary was very limited. I didn't know much, but I knew Jesus, and that made a difference. And, and as God helped me to be faithful in these opportunities that was right before me, those opportunities began to expand. Just like what we read in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Jesus said, go to Jerusalem first, then Judea, then Samaria, then all the uttermost parts of the earth. So the principle is be faithful in that which is in front of you. Don't worry about changing the world for God. Just change your world or let God change your world. And as we're faithful in the least, God will give us more and more opportunity. He will increase our influence. He will increase, uh, the, if we are using our business for his glory, he will increase it as we're faithful using it for his glory. And so uh, I was still in high school, and my mindset was I, I just need to share my experience with others. And so I just started sharing in my local public high school. Uh, I held Bible studies every lunch period. And I would invite the whole school. People would come because they remember me as a, as a druggie, as a stony boy, walking around with marijuana T-shirts and Bob Marley face on, on my shirt and my hat, you know, hiding my face and chains around my neck. And, and so now they saw me walking around with the Bible and with, with clarity in my eyes. And so many of those high school students in this public high school came to those Bible studies that I held every lunch period. Now, I was not trained to give Bible studies. I didn't go to a Bible college. I was still in high school. I simply shared the notes I took when I went to the evangelistic seminar. The notes that I took when I went to church. Do you take notes when you go to church? If so, then you're qualified to give Bible studies. Because that's what I did. I just shared what I knew. And God blessed those feeble efforts. And as a result, before I graduated, six of my friends and their family members were baptized joined the church, and accepted the truth as it is in Jesus. Amen? And so God was confirming that calling in my life. And so I started with the duty that lied very nearest, my own community, my own uh, friends, and, 
And, and when I graduated from high school, I had opportunities, different options and whatnot, but God convicted me, at least for me, that I, need, I, I, I did not want to leave home until every person in my neighborhood, in my community, had an opportunity to know the Jesus that I came to know. And so I decided to take a year off before going off to college or school, whatever. After graduating high school, I'm going to stay home for a year, and I'm not going to leave until I knock on every door in my community offering Bible studies. I supported myself by doing co-porting. Um, the, one of the conference literature ministries workers gave me books, gave me a canvas. I memorized it, and I just went out. And I offered Bible studies to every person in my community in that year. That was my goal. I'm going to start, go to Jerusalem first, my own people. And then after that, I'll begin to spread out. And God blessed it. After that year was finished, by God's grace, we were able to knock on, uh, I, can't, I can't say for sure, every single door, but almost every door in my, in my hometown. Now, I didn't, I didn't live in a huge city or anything, but it was a, a country uh, town in in, uh, in Hawaii, but uh, we had Bible studies all over the place, and God blessed. After that, we went to a two-year Bible college in Arizona to get further training, a uh, two-year college called Souls West, and then after that, uh, we then moved to Central California Conference. We've been there for the last 11 years, uh, doing evangelism all over the conference, sharing the good news of Jesus, and so Jerusalem, then Judea, then Samaria, just spreading it farther and farther and farther. And then, in the last few years, my wife and I, there has been a growing conviction in our hearts uh, that it's time to, to broaden even more. We've been in Central California Conference for the last 11 years. We've done over 60 evangelistic seminars. We feel like we've saturated the ter territory of the conference. We've been to every area multiple times. And so just a few weeks ago, we turned in our resignation after many months and perhaps years of prayer counsel from godly mentors. We turned in our resignation, uh, and, and now we are transitioning, stepping out in faith to take our evangelistic ministry in all the world, where, wherever we're invited. And so we just made that decision. We're in transition, but we're excited. It's an opportunity for God to grow our faith. And so we, we, we set up a nonprofit, Revelation of Hope Ministries. We, uh, we applied to be an ASI member. And so at, at, as of this month, I'm just going to be a lay evangelist. And go wherever the Lord calls, because God wants us to stretch out. Amen? There are a lot of people in the world who have yet to hear. We need to do more than what, we, what we're doing today to finish the work. I mean, you look at the condition of the world, friends. The stage is set for the final crisis to take place. You see all these different crises all coming together, happening at the same time. They're converging together. There's, there's a satanic synergy that sets the stage for the final event that we've been told that the final movements will be rapid ones. And so, yes, it's, it's, a, it's a step of faith getting out of the comfort zone of, of having a monthly paycheck and all the benefits. It, but I believe that, as Jesus said, that he's calling 11th hour workers out of the usual order of things to do great things for him. And if it's God's will, it's his bill. Amen. He'll take care of us. But we must make sure that we're not moving ahead of him. Amen? Let's make sure we're, we're wise. We plan as though we're here for another hundred years, but we live as though, each, this, as though today is our last day on earth. And so we've taken that faith journey, and we're excited about it. And that's what the disciples did. They started in Jerusalem, then Judea, then Samaria, then the uttermost parts of the world. It's a worldwide impact. 
the effect, the impact can be described as the ripple effect. It grows bigger and bigger to an ever-widening circle, but we first must do the duty that lies very near us. And so, what does this look like more specifically? We talked about broad, general things, which is very important because it's foundational. What does this look like practically and more specifically? Friends, what we need is spiritual synergy. Synergy is basically the interaction or cooperation of two or more organizations or other agents to produce a combined effect greater than the sum of their separate effects. We need to be praying in our churches that God will give us spiritual synergy. Too many times we work as individuals and we make an impact, but if we are to come together and allow the Lord to to, to, to fuse these ministries together and work closely together. It's then that synergy is created that will make that worldwide impact upon the world. And so this is the ideal that is outlined in the spirit of prophecy. In the book Evangelism, page 93, it says this. It is God's plan that every part of his government shall depend on every other part. That's what we call the law of interdependence. Too many times we live our lives dependently or independently. But as far as the church is concerned, we are to be interdependent upon one another. It says the whole as a wheel within a wheel, working with entire harmony. He moves upon human forces, causing his spirit to touch invisible cords to the, and the vibration rings to the extremity of the universe. So it's the ripple effect. But how does that ripple effect happen? the wheel within a wheel, it says that we must, the government of God, every part must depend on every other part. It's the law of interdependence. So what we're seeing here is interesting. God's kingdom in heaven is an organized, harmonious movement based upon and governed by the law of interdependence. The order and harmony that's described in heaven is, is, is described with the words a wheel within a wheel. Now, do you know where that expression comes from? It comes from Ezekiel chapter 1. When Ezekiel looked at the throne of God where the king sits, the center of the universe, God's throne, he was searching for human language to describe what he saw at the throne. But human language was insufficient to describe it. And so he simply said, when I looked, it was like a wheel in the middle of a wheel. What strange language. But that expression, when you think about a wheel, everything at God's throne, at the hub, was working together smoothly. You see, a wheel has motion and it has movement. And that's the characteristic of the throne of God. There's, there's movement, there's organization, there's harmony. And so if God's heavenly kingdom of glory is characterized like that, so too his earthly kingdom should try to emulate that. What is God's earthly kingdom? His kingdom of grace, and that's the church. The heavenly kingdom is the kingdom of glory. God's earthly kingdom is the kingdom of grace, which is the church. And so the church should be also characterized as a wheel in the midst of a wheel. It says in the book Evangelism, page 93, God is a God of order. Everything connected with heaven is in perfect order. Subjection and thorough discipline mark the movements of the angelic hosts. Success can only attend order and what kind of action? harmonious action. God requires order and system in his work now, no less than in the days of Israel. 
all who are working for him are to labor intelligently, not in a careless, haphazard manner. He would have his work done with faith and exactness. With, with what? Faith and exactness that he may place his seal of approval upon it. And so as the angelic hosts work with harmony, order, discipline, organization, and as a result there's movement, so too the earthly kingdom, the church, should emulate the harmony of heaven. The church ought to be a wheel within a wheel. Now, what does this mean specifically? Well, I illustrate it, or Ellen White illustrates it, and, and the Spirit of Prophecy illustrates it as a wheel, so let's just use that illustration. Now, there are many types of wheels. I'm a dirt bike rider and a mountain biker, so I use, the, uh, I use a, a dirt bike wheel as an illustration. This, this is what the church should look like. Now, uh, this dirt bike tire has at least four main components. There's the hub, then there's the spokes which come from the hub. The hub keeps it all together. The spokes come from the hub. Then all the spokes reach out to touch the tire that's filled with air. Now, do you know what this represents? The cycle of evangelism. The hub is Christ Jesus himself. Amen? He is the center, the throne, the hub. All the ministries of the church are the spokes. They come out from the hub. In other words, every ministry of the church, whether it be Dorcas or prayer ministry or youth ministry or Sabbath school or GLOW, medical ministry, a women's ministry, stewardship, you see all these different ministries of the church. They're all centered and held together in Christ, and they all come out of Christ for the same purpose of supporting the tire of evangelism. Now, the tire is where the rubber of the church's outreach meets the road of human experience. It's where the rubber meets the road. It's what makes the church relevant and practical and impactful in the community. So all the different ministries of the church, the spokes, many times they work independently. The youth just focus on the youth. Sabbath school just focus on Sabbath school. You have the children just focusing on the children. And they, they work independently. But how does God want it? Interdependently. They're all centered in Christ. They all come out of Christ. And their purpose is to support the wheel of evangelism, the, the tire of evangelism. And there's one other thing that, that, that needs to be in the, 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 the tire. What is that? Air. What does the air represent? The Holy Spirit. So this is what I like to call spirit-filled evangelism. The signs of spirit-filled evangelism. And so when all the different ministries of the church are centered in Christ, coming out of Christ, and are all supporting the big process of evangelism, filled with the Spirit, it's then that there is movement. It's then that we cease to be just another church, but we become a prophetic movement heading to a specific destiny in all the world and then into the kingdom of heaven. Amen? So if you notice, there's organization in the tire. And the organization is what makes movement possible. Now, what does this look like as we go now more specifically? Um, this spiritual synergy that comes from this organization is made in four main phases. This is what we call the life cycle of spirit-filled evangelism. Four phases, I'll give them to you one, uh, right now, and we'll go through them together. The first phase is preparation. The second phase, penetration. Third phase, proclamation, fourth phase, preservation, and the grand result, 
proliferation. So let's go through them together. The life cycle of spirit-filled evangelism that brings dynamic growth in the church and a reaping of souls in the community. First phase, preparation. The church must be prepared in order for uh, uh, In order for new people to come in, the church must first be prepared. You see, the church is not a rest home for saints, but it's a hospital for sinners. Amen? But before spiritually sick people can be admitted into the hospital, there should already be in place spiritual nurses and doctors who are ready to care for them. Now, when you go to the hospital, there's a lot of sick people. But there ought to be enough healthy people to take care of the sick people in the hospital. Otherwise, it's just bad news, right? That's what the church is. It's not a rest home for saints. It's a hospital for sinners. But there ought to be be a a good group of healthy, spiritually healthy people to take care of those who God wants to bring in. How can sinners get healthy if the nurses and doctors are sick or even dead themselves? Thus, each member of the church must be prepared in this first phase, and they must be prepared in two ways. How many ways? First one is resuscitation. Now, that is a very dramatic word, but it is so dramatic because the condition is even more dramatic. Resuscitation, it needs to happen when a person is what? Is dead or about to die. And the sad reality uh, is that many people are spiritually dead. So we must be resuscitated back to life. Resuscitation and mobilization. That was the second one. And so how does resuscitation take place? Happens through revival. The word revival literally means to live again. It literally means a resurrection. This is the first phase, our first work. uh, First Selected Messages, page 121. A revival of true godliness among us is the greatest and most urgent of all our needs. To seek this should be our first work. So the first phase is revival, resuscitation of the church. And then in the book, Councils on Diet and Foods, among other places, it gives us the reason why Pentecost is not being repeated in our midst. This is a very challenging quotation. I want to encourage you as we read it, let's not look around, but let's look within and ask the Lord, Lord, is it I? Is it I? Here's what it says. The Lord does not now work to bring what? Many souls into the truth. Now, why does God not, not work to bring many? I'm thankful it doesn't say any, because God brings some, amen? But many, the multitudes, the Pentecostal outpouring. Why? Because the church members who have never been converted, and those who were once converted but who have backslidden, what influence would these unconsecrated members have on new converts? Would they not make of no effect the God-given message which his people are to bear? You see, we can't say that the reason why multitudes aren't coming is because our methods are faulty. We have to look deeper and say, Lord, is it because I've not yet truly experienced conversion? You see, God cannot trust us because we're too full of self. We're too distracted by the things of of the flesh. So God wants to bring Pentecost again. He wants to bring this outpouring. It's been prophesied that the whole world will be lightened with the glory of God and that multitudes will come. Why hasn't it happened? It's because God can't trust us. We're not safe for him to bless in that way. So that's why this first phase is important. Preparation. We must let God make us safe to bless. Notice another one. Evangelism, page 111. When a special effort to win souls is put forth by labors of experience in a community where our own people live, there rests upon every believer in that field 
a most solemn obligation to do all in his power to do what? To clear the king's highway. How? Oh, stop right there. Let me just make a comment on this. To clear the king's highway. Back in those ancient times, whenever a king was going to a specific place, he would send his servants beforehand to clear the highway, to fill in all the potholes, to remove all the obstacles, so that when the king came after, he would have a smooth, easy entrance to that specific, specific place. When we're about to hold a meeting, the king is going to come in a special way. But before he comes, the church needs to clear the highway. Clear the king's highway for the coming of the king. How? It continues. By putting away every sin that would hinder him from cooperating with God and with his brethren. Clear the king's highway by putting away of sin. And then one more, Evangelism, page 110. There's a vast amount of rubbish brought forward by professed believers in Christ, which blocks up the way to the cross. Friends, can you imagine that? People are trying to get to the cross because they realize that that's the only way to be saved. And as they're, as they're trying to get to the cross, there's all this rubbish, all these obstacles that are hindering them from getting to the cross. What, what a tragedy. And it says that it's the professed believers that bring in all that rubbish, all those obstacles. Have the believers in the truth purified their minds by obeying it? Have they felt the importance of the knowledge and refinement of manners in Christ's work? Where one soul has been saved, there might have been 20. And so that's the preparation through, number one, resuscitation. And then number two, through mobilization, through training. Resuscitation, coming alive. And mobilization, learning how to work, to live and work for the Lord. Now, for the sake of time, I'm going to skip some of these quotations. Uh, but you can get the whole handout if you want. Unfortunately, uh, I, I guess we weren't able to print them out. But if you want to go to our, our website, you can download the PDF of the entire handout that goes through all these quotations and details. For the sake of time, I'm going to have to skip some of these. Some of these. But uh, the first phase is preparation by resuscitation and mobilization. Basically, coming alive and being trained to live and work. What does this look like practically? Practical preparation in the local church, there must be an emphasis on prayer and prophetic study because that's what brings spiritual life. Number two, the church needs to recruit and, and train and be organized into evangelistic teams. And uh, unfortunately, we don't have the time to go through those teams. We have it in the handout that you can read. Preparing the church property. That's something very practical. You know, we need to make sure that our churches look nice. Amen? The house of God. You know, we're, we're concerned with our own homes looking nice, just just like it was in back, back in, in the time of, uh, of, of Nehemiah and Haggai. People were dwelling in their covered houses while the house of God was laid in ruins. We need to invest in making our church look nice, practically. Preparing the church property. Planning a follow-up program. You plan the follow-up before the meetings actually begin. So that when the meetings are finished, you don't have to say, now what do we do? You already have a plan that's been prepared and you just have to execute it. And so that's the practical preparation phase as you think about the cycle of evangelism. And then phase two is penetration. Penetration of the community in two ways, by our prayers and by our presence. Number one, first phase, preparation of the church. Number two, penetration of the community. 
by our prayers and by our presence in practical ministry. Christ's Object Lessons, page 229 says, We are not to wait for souls to come to us. We must seek them out where they are, not only physically, but where they are in their spiritual mindsets. When the word has been preached in the pulpit, the work has but just begun. There are multitudes who will never be reached by the gospel unless it is carried to them. You see, in the Old Testament dispensation, the people came to the temple. They came to church. But in the New Testament, the church is to go to the people. If we're still waiting for people to come to church, we're living in an, in an Old Testament mindset, we can say. The New Testament is the church must go to the people. We must reach them where they are. And so penetration of the community, look, what does this look like? Here are some practical things. We must pray constantly for our church and community. We must establish relationships in the community. We must build anticipation for upcoming events and meetings and assist with public advertising. This is uh, more specifically in the context of preparing uh, for the evangelistic meetings. So we're doing bridge events, pathways to health, meeting people's felt needs so that we can meet their real needs as a result. And so that's penetration. And then the third phase. What is the third phase? Let's review. The first phase is preparation of the church. Second phase is penetration of the community. What, what is next? It starts with a P. It is the proclamation of the message. And this is the actual, what you can say, event. The three to four week Bible prophecy seminar where we expound on the end time message of the three angels founded in the word, centered in Christ, framed in prophecy, and filled by the Spirit. Were we calling people for decisions for Christ? Proclamation. I don't have to say much about that, but then we go to the last phase, which is so important, that is lacking, which is perhaps the weak point in many churches' evangelistic outreach, and that is preservation. Too many times we dip them and we drop them. What a tragedy. Multitudes come in, but there's no follow-up to take care of them. You see, when a person is baptized, what, what happened when Jesus was baptized? Where did he go? He went into the wilderness where he was severely attacked by Satan. You see, people are the most vulnerable spiritually immediately after they're baptized. That's when they need us the most. When, when, when in a person's experience are they the most helpless and the most vulnerable? When they're born. Babies can't do anything, right? That's when they're the most vulnerable and the most helpless. So too, when people are born again, when they're baptized, that's when they're the, the most vulnerable. That's when they need the most attention. It's in the preservation phase. And so I'm not an evangelist that is big on numbers. You know, I, I, I would rather baptize one person that is, is, is truly ready than a thousand who are not ready and that's not going to last. Jesus said, you have chosen me. You have not chosen me, but I've chosen you and ordained you that you should bring forth much fruit and that your fruit should remain. That's what we're, we should be interested in, amen? Because success is not measured by numbers. Success is measured by faithfulness. If you look at the Bible, God did not number his people, but he named his people. I'm more interested in names than numbers, amen? Because names are, are, are more than just statistics. It refers to an actual person that Jesus died for. And so... 
how can we preserve those who come in? Uh, 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 those who are just baptized, they need at least three things. Perhaps more, but surely not less. They need three things in order to be preserved from the attacks of Satan. Number one, clarification. Number two, integration. And number three, activation. What are, these, what, what are we talking about? Number one, theological clarification. They need to go over the same material again to have it uh, uh, settled in their hearts. Evangelism 3.34 says, After the first efforts have been made in a place by giving a course of lectures, there is really greater necessity for a second course than for the first. The truth is new and startling, and the people need to have the same presented the second time to get the points distinct and the ideas fixed in the mind. So theological clarification, but not just that, social integration. Social integration. After individuals have been converted to the truth, they need to be looked after. The zeal of many ministers seems to fail as soon as a measure of success attends their efforts. They do not realize that these newly converted ones need what? Nursing, watchful attention, help, and encouragement. These should not be left alone a prey to Satan's most powerful temptations. They need to be educated in regard to their duties, to be kindly dealt with, to be led along and visited and prayed with. Social integration. They must be integrated into the social life of the church. Many of them, as a result of standing for truth and accepting it, have been rejected by their friends and their family members, misunderstood by others. And if we don't establish those relationships, the temptation is strong for them to give it up and go back to their friends and to secure the support of their family members. Social integration. Then the third one, ministerial activation. They must be given something to do to reach out. And I wrote these words, the best way to grow spiritually is by sharing our faith with others. New members should be given outreach opportunities to share their faith and use their gifts and talents for the blessing of others. When people are given responsibilities according to their capabilities, they are more likely to take ownership of the mission of the church and the mission of Christ. So what does this look like more practically? Let's get more practical now. Practical preservation, what are some things that need to take place? Number one, execute the follow-up program that has been established or prepared during the preparation process. Number two, launch a new member Sabbath school class for the sake of theological clarification. New member Sabbath school class, but also for the sake of social integration because Sabbath school classes are such that there should be interaction. There should be dialogue and not monologue. And that way, people can connect more. Number three, integrate newly baptized into church life through church socials by inviting these over to your house for dinner, by spending time with them. Number four, within six months, at the end of the meeting, or from their baptism, within six months, newly baptized should be trained and involved in some type of ministry in and out of the church. Some type of ministry where they're helping in the church, maybe a deacon or, or, you know, some type of responsibility. They're helping, but also something outside of the church. Globe ministries or going door to door, coming with you to, to give Bible studies. That will, that's ministerial activation. Number five, invite those on your contact list to all the follow-up programs that your church is ho holding. Uh, numbers, no, the next one, number six, prepare for future baptisms. And number seven, plan for the next evangelistic series. 
so that the cycle can continue to go on and on and on. And so we looked at these four phases, four life cycle phases in the evangelistic process. Now, let's see if you can remember them without looking at your notes. I repeated it a whole bunch of times. You ought to get it in your mind by now. But if not, don't worry, I'll help you. The first phase, they all start with the letter P. The first phase is preparation of the church. How? By resuscitation in spiritual life and mobilization through training. That's preparing the church. And when the church is prepared, they're now ready to do the second thing, which is penetration of the community by our prayers and our presence in practical ministry. Penetration of the community. And then that prepares the community for the third phase, which is proclamation of the message. Proclamation of the truth. Reaping, uh, gaining decisions for Christ. And then the fourth phase is preservation. Now, how are people preserved? They need at least three things. What are they? Theological clarification, social integration, and ministerial activation. And friends, when these things happen, you'll experience dynamic growth in the church and heaven's population will be increased. Can you say amen? Now, in Acts chapter 2, verse 41 and 42, we find that this was the model of the early, early apostolic church. Um, you can read that yourself, but basically it tells us that the early church, the Lord added unto them. The Lord added to the church all these believers and it says that they continued in the apostles' doctrine. That's teaching. But also they broke bread together. That's food. They spent time together. That's fellowship. And of course, they prayed together. So there are four things listed there in Acts 2, 41 and 42 that caused dynamic growth, sustainable growth in the early apostolic church. Prayer, teaching, fellowship, and food. The first two are more theological. The second two are more practical. But you notice that they had a balance. It wasn't all theology, it wasn't all head, but it was also practical in fellowshipping and eating together. And so this is the idea, this is the goal uh, that we need to shoot for. Christ Object Lessons, page 233. Christ's servants are to follow his example. As he went forth from place to place, he comforted the suffering and healed the sick. Then he placed before them the great truths in regard to his kingdom. This is the work of his followers. As you relieve the sufferings of the what? The body. You'll find ways for ministering to the wants of the soul. You can point to the uplifted Savior and tell of the love of the great physician who alone has power to restore. And so, reaching people's felt needs, food and fellowship, and reaching their real needs, which is Jesus, the gospel through prayer and prophetic study. And uh, so that's the four phases of the evangelistic cycle. Now, there's something that we've been trying to do as much as we can in our evangelistic ministry that, that meets all of these, these needs at the same time. We call it round table evangelism. It's a unique format for doing an evangelistic meeting that combines and facilitates friendship evangelism and proclamation evangelism more easily and naturally. It's a way to do meetings that, that meets the felt needs and the real needs of the people. And the, the nature of this approach uh, brings results that are actually lacking in many of the traditional evangelistic meetings that, that we know and think of. Let, before I explain what it is, let me tell you what it does. And you tell me if you'd like to see this in your local church. Here's what it does. It involves many more church members 
in evangelism. It establishes small groups while training small group leaders at the very same time. It connects the church and the community in a very natural, non-threatening way. It meets the felt needs and real needs of the community at the same time. It creates an atmosphere where the unchurched are comfortable learning deep theological truths. And it dramatically increases the retention of contacts after the seminar is finished. How many of you like to experience that kind of results? And so what are the key components in roundtable evangelism? Number one is the environment. What we do is instead of holding meetings in the church or in a hall where all, the, where all the pews are facing the same direction and people are not able to look at each other, they're, they're facing the same direction. Instead of that, we hold it in a fellowship hall or a gymnasium with round tables. Now, these tables are square, but it's the same thing. They're all, they can all look at each other at least. Uh, as people arrive, we invite them to come early. Uh, if the meeting starts at 7 o'clock, we invite them to come at around 6 o'clock for a free meal. That's the second component, is food. A free, healthy, vegetarian-slash-vegan meal that is, that, that is uh, tasteful, healthy, recognizable, where they sit around the table. <laughs> Some of our food, you can't recognize what it is, right? <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> and so when the people come in to register, we assign them a specific table, and at that table, there are at least two church members at that table. They're assigned to that table. And the job of the, those table facilitators is to be the host of all those who are sitting at that table. They are like the pastors of that little church. And as the meal comes, we have servers that serve the food to the table. And so you have about a 45-minute slot where people are just interacting. Non-threatening environment. They're eating together, getting to know one another. Small groups are being established. Church members are taking ownership of the mission. They're looking upon these people that they're seeing every night because people usually sit the same place every single night as their flock. And so the fellowship and the food, that meets the felt needs. And then after the meal is finished, at about 6.50 to 7 o'clock, about 10 minutes, we have the discovery time lesson where there's a half sheet of paper with a few questions that introduces the subject for that night. The two church members at each table leads out in that discovery lesson time, inviting the people to open the Bible to read together, and to fill out that discovery lesson. So that, inter- that, 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 that brings about a spirit of investigation. They're investigating truth before they hear it because we retain what we discover ourselves much longer than simply what we hear from a talking head. And then after that, the message. The evangelist gets up and preaches the message just like a regular evangelistic seminar. And so whenever we've done this, we've, we've seen tremendous, tremendous results. A spirit of revival sweeps over the church. Christian cohesion takes place as church members are are, are get united. And they're they're not just spectators, but they're participants. They have a place. They have something to do. And as they see the faces of of their flock, the the, the guests at their table, and how they're wrestling with truth, now the church members begin to take ownership. They feel the burden of souls when the people at their table are missing a night. They now can call them in because they have established that relationship. And as people make decisions, church members realize that they played a huge part in that decision. It wasn't just the preacher behind the pulpit. It's a team effort, all working together. The law of interdependence, spiritual synergy. Churches working together 
and dynamic results take place. Now let me tell you a few stories in these final minutes we have together. Uh, we did a meeting in Mountain View, a church that hasn't done meetings in over 30 years. And the reason why they did not do meetings for over 30 years, let me tell you why. Silicon Valley, the home of Apple and Google and other uh, rich and educated, secular and satisfied people. The church members said evangelism doesn't work. That type of evangelism, it just doesn't work. The people, we, there's a different demographic here. And, and so traditional meetings don't work. And this mindset prevented them from doing meetings for over three decades. But finally, a small group of people decided to step out in faith to make Christ's mission their own, and so they invited us to come to meetings. We held the meetings in their fellowship hall with round tables, church members assigned to each table. And friends, the meeting was packed every single night. We had a full meal, healthy food being served to the tables every night, and, and to see the interaction of the church and the community was so beautiful. At the end of those meetings, over 30 people were baptized in a place where people said evangelism do doesn't work in our community. Now, let me tell you, one of them, her name was Madeline. There she is to the right. Madeline uh, grew up in the Catholic Church, and uh, she was in her 60s, late 60s, early 70s, I think. And uh, she received the invitation in the mail. She came, and she sat at the table, fell in love with the people at her table. It was, a, it was like a little family there. And uh, even though she heard strong messages from God's Word, shaking messages, she was one of the many that came to the altar in responding to the appeal and one of the many that was baptized at the end of those meetings. And here's she, here's Madeline getting baptized. Look at the look on her face. You know what she told me afterwards? After she was baptized, she came to me with tears in her eyes. She said, thank you for giving me my new life. And I said, sister, you understand that we didn't do anything. It was the Lord that brought you to this place, and he's the only one that can give new life. She said, I've been waiting all my life to hear what I've heard in this place. Thank you for giving me my new life. Now, I often wonder what would have happened if that church would have done meetings 30 years prior. Maybe that would have saved Madeline 30 years of waiting to hear the message. There are people who need to hear the message. Amen? Let me tell you another story about Matt and Andrea. Matt also came to that meeting in Mountain View. Now, Matt is interesting. He, uh, there's a church member by the name of Robert who had a bumper sticker that said the seventh day is the Sabbath. He is parked at a, 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 a mall one day, and after he's done shopping, he comes to his car, and he finds a, a note on his windshield that somebody put there, handwritten, I saw your bumper sticker. I'm interested. Please give me a call. Robert, who's the church member that owned the car, put the bumper sticker there. He called Matt, who's the one that left the note. Now, Matt right there is, is, is to the right. Matt and Robert got together, started having Bible studies. Bible studies led to coming to the evangelistic seminar. So Matt came to the seminar, and he also brought his Catholic girlfriend, Andrea. Now, Andrea was the secretary of the local Catholic church there in Mountain View. She was also the youth leader. She grew up in that church. She knew everyone, super influential. And they came to the meetings in the roundtables, and they were enjoying it. They were convicted. To make a long story short, they were convicted that they needed to be baptized. Matt was ready, but Andrea was struggling because all her family, starch Catholic, were attacking her. And she had this internal struggle. Well, one day throughout the course of the meetings, her whole family took her out to eat. 
at a Chinese restaurant. And all the while, the dad was pressuring her, you're making the wrong decision. One day your eyes will be open. You're going to understand the reality that you're getting brainwashed. And Andrea just took it patiently. But she couldn't deny that what she heard was true. So at the end of that meal, the server comes to bring the bill, and with the bill, the fortune cookies. The fortune cookies are distributed. The dad opens his fortune cookie, and he says to Andrea, see, I told you, I told you, this is for you. His fortune cookie said, and this is the actual fortune cookie. You will discover truth in time. That's what he was saying to Andrea, but that's what his fortune cookie was saying to him. (laughs) And so Andrea said, no, that's not mine. That's yours. You're going to discover truth in time. And then Andrea took the last fortune cookie and she opened her fortune cookie. And here's what it says. Now is the time to set your sights high and go for it. (laughs) So at the end of the meetings, Matt and Andrea were baptized. Amen. And then just this past fall, we did meetings again in Mountain View, came back. And Matt and Andrea, that was 2012 that they were baptized. 2014, they were the roundtable leaders in our meetings. This is what we call full circle evangelism. A wheel within a wheel. You see, the, after the preservation... You now go back to preparation, penetration, proclamation, preservation. Then you go back to preparation, and the wheel just keeps on and on and on. This is what brings motion and momentum to the movement called Adventism, a movement that will bring us all the way to the end of time. Amen? I could share with you another story, but our time is finished, and so I don't want to take the time. Oh, it's okay? Oh, you'll love this story. I apologize if... I'm crossing boundaries, but I'll be quick. Victor, let me tell you about Victor. Victor moved to Fresno to get away from the pain of his problems in Dallas, Texas. He had just lost his infant child. Her name was Miracle, and she passed away. So he was moving to Fresno. He didn't know anyone in Fresno, but he moved to Fresno to to get his mind off of things, to start over, to start afresh. Well, he's walking down the street one day, when all of a sudden he sees a very colorful piece of paper on the sidewalk. Picks it up inviting him to the Revelation of Hope Bible Prophecy Seminar. He came to the meetings thirsty for truth, and truly God gave him a new beginning. At the end of those meetings, he was baptized. Right after he was baptized, we took him, a part of our team, to our next evangelistic meeting in Kona in the big island of Hawaii. And so this was just two months after he's baptized. Now he's the one knocking on doors, giving those same invitations out to the meeting that just changed and transformed his life. Now, Victor is a basketball player, and so he made friends with a contact that also plays basketball, and and they were playing basketball on the day off, a way to connect, right, to encourage this person, and for about five hours straight, they were playing basketball with, 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 you know, know, with other people in the community and whatnot. Well, at the end, they they get picked up by the, the mother of this person, and they're now driving back to the church to drop off Victor. They stop to get some food. He's eating a sandwich. And Victor doesn't realize that he's experiencing heat exhaustion because he wasn't really drinking water. And so he's eating this sandwich, and then all of a sudden he takes a drink of water, and when he took that drink of water, he exploded all over the car. 
the food just vomited. He just vomited out on all over the car. The vomit went all the way. He was in the back seat. It went all the way to the front windshield. All in the hair of, 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 the, of, the, of the driver and the, the contacts. He basically threw up. He barfed on his contacts. <laughs> and there was still about five minutes left in the drive, and there was silence. Victor felt so bad because he was thinking, man, this last couple minutes, I wanted to encourage them to come to the meetings and pray with them, but I just barfed all over their car and just, it was a mess. They dropped him off. They were angry. But the next night, they came to the meetings. And they told Victor, we spent about five or six hours and a whole bunch of cleaning bottles to clean that car. But despite all of that, they got baptized at the end of the meetings. And so what's the point? You can barf, but God will still bless. Amen? (laughs) God blessed in a very special way. As Victor was able to see the fruits of his ministry, just having been baptized himself. Full circle evangelism. So once again, preparation of the church, penetration of the community, proclamation of the word, preservation of the people, results in the proliferation of the mission that will end in the consummation of this controversy at the second coming of Jesus Christ. I want to be used. How about you? More we can say, but our time is finished. But let us pray, friends, like we've never prayed before. Let us go out and finish the work so that we can all go home. Amen? I want to invite you to stand with me as we pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for the high honor And the great privilege you've placed upon us in being messengers of mercy, messengers of light in this dark, crazy world we live in. We thank you, Lord, that you've allowed us to live in the most exciting period of this world's history. And we pray, Lord, that you would please search our hearts. Show us what more we can do for you. You've done so much for us. Father, use us. I pray, Lord, that we would be evangelists after your own heart. That you make us the missionaries and messengers you want us to be. Forgive us, Lord, for being so focused on self that we pass by those all around us who are just waiting to hear the things that we have heard. Father, I pray that we would all experience personal growth as well as church growth so that there can be kingdom growth. Lord, we know that you're coming soon. All the signs are pointing to that reality. We want to be ready, Lord. Make us ready, but we don't want to go to heaven by ourselves. Use us to bring our friends, our family members. Because if they're not there, it's just not going to be the same without them. So please, Lord, save us and use us to spread that saving message to others. Thank you so much for my friends here. Bless us as we go back to our churches our businesses, our communities. I pray that you would increase our influence and that you would make us safe for you to bless. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. This media was produced by Audioverse for ASI, Adventist Layman's Services and Industries. If you would like to learn more about ASI, please visit www.asiministries.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.